Welcome to the Rhodes Church Podcast. We are so excited to connect with you. We hope that this podcast builds your faith and that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. Man, I want to jump right in to what God wants to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles here at the Rhodes Church, we love us some Bible. Uh, if you don't know my name's Chad, then it is. Great to meet you. I'm just trying to cut the pleasantries. I want to get into what God wants to do, but man, it is a privilege to have you with us this morning. Hope you feel right at home. Welcome to the Rhodes Church. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, what did I say? We, I said we love the Bible, didn't I? Amen. How much do we love the Bible? Well, I hope we love it more than the first service does. But we love the Bible. So when we open our Bibles, we get a little excited. Now, if you're new here, your first time at Easter Sunday, and you're used to a nice, calm, um, well, just prepare yourself. Because the person next to you is about to lose their mind. But it doesn't mean anything weird. It just means we love Jesus. I believe we should be more excited about Jesus than we are the Cubs winning the World Series. Barely, but we should be. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, let's get your Bibles. Let's open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I lost part of the congregation on the Cubs comment, but that's all right. You just get over it. I waited a long time for that World Series. Let me just have it. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. I want to talk about uh, a name above every other. Yeah. A name above every other. Yeah, let's just read and uh, let the Lord speak to us through his word. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's just pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and just dwell among us. I pray that you bring life to this. I pray that you will bring clarity of communication and clarity of thought Lord, even to us as we receive your word, and I pray, Lord, over every distractive thought, I, I bind every uh, enemy tactic that might try and keep people from hearing your word today in the name of Jesus. We, we bind every lie of the devil, every principality and power. We cast it down, and we thank you for liberty in the house of God today to hear and flow and to receive from you in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Let's go back to verse 5 of this passage. This is Paul writing to a church in Philippi called the Philippians. And he says in verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now the word mind there is a, a word that just means a way of thinking. It means a certain direction or opinion. So he's literally saying to them this, let this mind, that let this is an imperative form of a word for you grammatical people and English people. It's a mood that expresses not just a request, but almost to the 
form of command, like let this happen. Like in other words, you have a say-so in it, so let it happen. And this is what he's saying when he writes this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the same mind that was in Christ is available to you. Selah. The same thought process, the same way there is an opportunity for us to put our opinions, our thoughts in the same direction that Jesus did. You're like, well, not me. Well, I'm just saying, Paul's writing, he's saying, let this be in you, which was also in Christ. So let's get our mind, our will and emotions, our thoughts in the direction, the same direction as Jesus. We're going to focus our attention on Jesus, on the cross, on what he's done for us. Jesus is the focus and the emphasis. We pray that you didn't come today for a great Easter production. We pray that you came today so that you could meet Jesus. He's the one that's going to change our life. He's the one that needs to be front and center. It's all about Jesus. So look at verse 6. Oh, speaking of, speaking of, I just want to acknowledge too and thank, I said in the first service, but I about forgot to say it. I just want to say thank you to Promise. I don't know where she's at. Promise, she's one of the painters. For last week in the message, she did such a fantastic job. Man, thank you. Thank you, Promise. Love us, the Bradleys. Wonderful people. Verse 6, who being, this talking about Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, what does that mean? Jesus was in the form of God. The word uh, form there is the word morphe, where we get the, the root of metamorphosis. To morph is to actually be the essential nature of something. It means this in the Greek, the essential expression of something in nature uh, and character, both internal and external. So Jesus was in the morph of God himself. The essential nature, character, everything that God was, Jesus was in that form. He was the same level. Just giving us context so we can understand. And the reason I'm laying this groundwork is sometimes I think we think too much about what Jesus can do for us and we don't think enough about what he did for us. We need to understand the complexity of what Jesus really did when he left heaven and was born of a woman and then went to a cross and died and then was resurrected from the grave. It is bigger than just a cute Bible story on Christmas and Easter. It's more than that. And if we don't understand what he did, then we will be a little passive about embracing what he did and just think, well, what's in it for me? Friends, it's not about what's in it for us. It's about what he did for us. Because he was in the morph. He was in the form of God. He was in the essential nature of God. But then what happened? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't think that it was taking anything that didn't belong to him to be equal with God. He was equal with God the Father himself and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was equal. He didn't think it was robbery. He wasn't taking something that didn't belong to him. The Father had made him equal. Trinity, three in one. All three God, 
all three the same. It's not the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm just making sure we need to understand that. Now let's go into verse 7. And made himself. So, okay, remember, he's morphed. He's like God, not morphed like he started out. He's in the form of God. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the morphe form of a bondservant. So we've got Jesus in heaven, who's the exact essential nature inside and out of God himself, but he made himself of no reputation. Now we need to understand what that phrase means. Made of no reputation. I'm not a big fan of that translation. I'm reading out the New King James Version, not because I think it's the best, because it's the version I've memorized most of my scriptures from, so I'm just used to it. But the phrase made of no reputation makes it sound like Jesus made himself not popular, and that's not what it means. The word there in the Greek language literally means to empty oneself, to remove or eliminate privileges associated with a high status or rank, to deprive, to undress, or to strip. Now let's put that together. Jesus was in the morphe, the form of God, but he made himself, he emptied himself, he removed or eliminated privileges, stripped himself, undressed himself from his divinity, his heavenly privileges, and morphed out of God into a bondservant. Now careful. It doesn't mean Jesus on the earth was not still God, but he fully became man along with God. The Son of God became Son of Man. He was conceived of Holy Spirit, God. God's seed, born of a woman, flesh. So he became a human filled with God. You understand it? We'll make sure we grasp what we're talking about. He made himself of no reputation. So he emptied himself. So when Jesus walked around on the earth, he didn't walk around in the same form that he had when he was in heaven. It was a new form. He became a bondservant, which means a slave or someone subject to the control of someone else. Is this challenging some religious thoughts? Get some quiet. When Jesus came, he said, he said this in the Bible. He said, the works that I do, I don't do them myself. The Father in me does them. He put himself on the earth in complete submission to the Father. He said, I don't do my own will. I do the will of the Father who sent me. So he morphed into this bondservant and said, I'm taking a new position. I'm coming in the likeness of men. So he came to be like us, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Here he goes. He keeps lowering himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now here again, my translation that I'm using when it says he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, the point of is in italics in my Bible. That's because they added that thinking it would bring clarity. I think it changes the meaning. So I'm going to take it out. Not because it's 
sacrilegious to uh, adjust scripture. It's in italicized, so that's not in the original Greek language. So they want to say, hey, you're adjusting the Bible. Every jot, every tittle. Well, this is not a jot or tittle in the original. Trying to be accurate theologically so people think that I'm just making stuff up. So look what it should read. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Not just obedient to the point of death, he became obedient to death itself. Why does the Bible say that Jesus had to be obedient to death? Because Jesus is life. He is the essence of life. He did not, they did not kill him. He willingly gave his life. Even the death of the cross, the most humiliating, embarrassing, painful death of the time, Jesus submitted himself to the cross. He willingly gave his life. They didn't take his life. He offered it. You can't kill the giver of life. You can't kill him. He has to lower himself and become obedient to something he rules over. Why would you do that, Jesus? You have authority over death. You've never died. You don't even know death. You've never Tasted of death. How could you be obedient to death? I'm glad you asked. Look what it says in John chapter 10. It says, therefore my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He said, listen, I have power to lay my life down and I have power for my life to be picked up again. I'm, not, I'm going to become obedient to death. Why? Why? Because of us. Jesus didn't need victory over death. We did. We're the ones that died after Adam and Eve. Every single human being died. Except Enoch and Elijah. There's two. Two pretty big players, though. Enoch was just walked with God, and then all of a sudden he was, and then he wasn't. We don't know where he went. We just know he's with God. Ezekiel comes down. They pick him up in a chariot and take him home. I'm hoping that's how I go out. I'll be like, bring the chariot. Where's the chariot? But notice what happens. We needed victory over death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus himself likewise shared with flesh and blood, that through death, through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. How did Jesus give victory over death? Through death. He defeated the devil and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So now he's released us from the fear of death. We're not into bondage to sin and death anymore because Jesus through death has the victory over death. Death was swallowed up in victory. This is why we know Jesus had to die because there are no participation trophies in the kingdom of heaven. I was cleaning out yesterday, I was cleaning out some storage, and I come across this box of trophies of mine, and 
I pulled out this one and little, little one, and it said 1979, first place tournament. Yes, 1979, yes. <laughs> Had a little baseball guy on there and said first place. And I was like, wow, I remember that. Because this was T-ball. And Lucas was there. My son was standing there with me. And I said, Lucas, look at that. That was back when you had to win a trophy. They didn't give it to you just because you played on the team. <laughs> this is the way it's supposed to be. You win a trophy. You don't get one just because you put a glove on your hand and walk out on a field. That's what I'm saying in the kingdom of heaven Jesus couldn't have the victory over death just because he wanted it. He had to overcome. He stripped the devil of the power of death by dying on the cross and then being resurrected. No one had ever been resurrected prior to Lazarus ever. And Jesus was eternally resurrected. So because Jesus was resurrected, he defeated death. And now he says, whoever believes in me, you too can have victory over death. So now I'm not in bondage to death. So if I breathe my last in this body, I'm immediately going to be in the presence of the Lord. When we serve Jesus, there's no fear of death anymore. There's no fear of death. Because only through death will we really live. It's eternal life. It's life. It's life like life we've never experienced before. So he said this. This is what he did. Even death of the cross. Verse 9. Therefore, because he humbled himself and went through this death and resurrection, therefore God has highly exalted him, highly lifted him up, lifted him up not only in resurrection, but also to seat at the right hand of the Father and given him the name. Everybody say the name. The name. The name which is above how many names? Every. It's above every name, above all names. The name of Jesus is above every single name. The name of Jesus is a distinguisher. It is a, uh, something happens, you draw a line in the sand when you say the name of Jesus. It's one thing when people get up after a, a winning an award or a sporting event or something, it's, I just want to thank God. And, but that's great. I appreciate that. But there's something different when people get up and say, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, people get nervous, get uncomfortable. The interviewer's like, oh, okay, well, that's wonderful. Thank you. They, they don't know what to do because there's something about Jesus. He's a name above every name. When you say the name of Jesus, it separates things. There is only one name whereby we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. Jesus, he's the name above every name. His name is the one that we celebrate. His name is the one that gets exalted. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, look what happens. Woo, what happens? Every knee, how many knees? Every knee should bow. Those, and notice the realms, notice the coverage. We're not talking about cell phone coverage here. We're talking about name coverage. But the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth. Everything is covered in that description. Every name in heaven is subject to the name of Jesus. I didn't say that. God, God highly exalted the name of Jesus. It is the highest name in heaven. 
Why? Because he emptied himself of his godliness, went to the earth, humbled himself, died for humanity. God rose him from the dead and he honored his son. He said, you didn't have to leave, but you did. You gave up everything. Here's something we need to understand. What Jesus did when he took on the form of a man, when he morphed into that figure and became the firstborn of many brethren, he's never going back to the way he was. Why am I saying that? Because some of the time we don't realize what Jesus did. We thought he just went, you know, I'm going to go down there and take on a man, then I'll come right back up and everything will be back to normal. No! He gave up everything to get everything in return. He gave up everything for us. He became a man because we were lost. There was no way for us to get to God. Well, I come to church every single week. It doesn't matter. Well, I read my Bible, I pray, and I help people, I give money. It doesn't matter. Without Jesus going to the cross and raising from the dead, we're not making it. So it's not about what I do. It's not about what you do. It's not about, well, I think God ought to be grateful that I came this morning. Well, that's wonderful that you came. But do you realize what he did for you? I'm thrilled that you came. I get excited that you came. But do you understand what he did for you? Do you understand the sacrifice he made when he left his father's side and said, I will go and let them punch me and beat me and rip my beard right out of my face and beat me over the back 39 times? Why? So that we could pray a prayer and believe with all of our heart and say, Jesus, I receive forgiveness of sins so that every knee will bow to the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee. Why, why knee? I'm I thinking about that. I was like, what's the big deal about every knee bowing? You see this in movies all the time. You see it with the, with, with the evil, the bad guy, the bad person, whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to name movies. Never mind. <laughs> but they'll say, hey, kneel before me. Kneel. It's a subservient position. It's a recognition that you are superior to me. You are superior to me. I bow before you. I am not the most important person in the room. You are. And it says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In that moment, he's talking about someday... Someday, every single knee will bow. The, the strongest atheist, the strongest whatever, every knee will bow because they will see him. And once you see Jesus for who he is, all of religion and churchianity will get shot out the window. And it will not be about what I can do to, to honor you, God, by like coming and doing things. It will be, oh my goodness, you are real. What they preached about, what they talked about, you are real. And I can't even stand in your presence because you're so amazing and holy and glorious. 
Friends, there'll be a realization beyond anything I can even express in words. I can't even put it into words. I wish I could. I wish that I could so that I could help us all understand the value of bowing now versus bowing then. Because every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, but that doesn't mean they're going to be saved. Because when every knee bows and every tongue confesses in the end, it will just be an acknowledgement of what is true, but it will not be a confession of faith unto salvation. Only knees bowing and tongue confessing now make a difference in where we spend eternity. The question for us is not about do I believe that there is a God or demons believe that there's a God. It's not that I even believe Jesus is the Son of God. That doesn't make the difference. I wish it did. I wish I could tell you there's a... I want to apologize for years and years of churchianity that have robbed people from the true gospel. The true gospel is not about what uh, I can, what the minimum I can do to still punch my ticket and go to heaven. That is not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus walked up to people that were busy doing other things, fishing or taking taxes, doing other things, and he walked up to them and had this great presentation of an invitation of an altar call. Here's what he said, follow me. What did he say? He said, follow me. What does that mean? Something, there was something in that pool that when Jesus said, follow me, James, John, Peter, Andrew, they dropped their nets. Matthew, they dropped his stuff at the tax collector and they started going with him. What was the pull? It was the pull of a person, not the pull of a building to go to. There's something about him, something about being with him, relationship that pulled people to him. This is the gospel invitation is that I will bow my knee, not just figuratively and literally, but in my heart even saying, Jesus. I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I want to follow you. Because as Amy said earlier when talking about her son, there's more. There's more to Jesus than just coming to church. Is going to church important? It is. I, I always, man, please do, please do. But come for him. Come for him. Because he's not impressed that I came. I'll say it again. God's not impressed that I came. He's glad, I'm glad I came, but he knows that's not what's going to save me. Only thing that's going to save me is giving my heart completely and fully to Jesus. So what Jesus did for us, humbled himself, took on the form of a man, and became obedient to death, even death of the cross, so that the penalty for death could be paid for you and I, so that now you and I have no fear of death because through Jesus, he becomes the resurrection and the life. Let me read you this passage. John chapter 11. Jesus was talking to the sister of Lazarus who's been dead for four days, and he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Why did he add, do you believe this? 
Because the fact that he is the resurrection and the life is not what's going to make the difference in my life. It's going to make a difference on whether I believe in him or not. He is the resurrection and the life. That is without dispute. It's uncontestable. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The tomb is empty today because Jesus is alive. But all of that will not get me to heaven. What will get me in the presence of God is if I believe that he is the resurrection and the life. Well, I believe it. No, not believe in it, but believe in such a way that my life, actions, and decisions align with what he says. So the invitation to us today is what Jesus did for us, is it enough to convince you? Is it enough to convince me that I should give my life to him? With everything that he did, with what he left, what he was willing to give up to come to earth and die, is that enough for us or do we need more? I just don't think that was enough. You know, one of the Godheads actually leaving heaven and becoming like a man and paying the price for sins for humanity, all past, present, future, and and humbling himself and taking on a form that's going to be completely different for all of eternity and and being willing to die on a cross uh, of people that he created, let them do that. I don't think that's a big enough deal. I, I need God to do a little bit more for me to give my life to him. How much do we make it about us to say, Lord, what am I going to get out of this? If I come to church, what are you going to do for me? He's like, I did everything for you already. I can't do anymore. The question is, what will we do for him? There's nothing else he could do. He's already paid the price. He made it available to you and to me. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to give, please visit us at theroads.church. To stay connected, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch our latest sermons.